beloved church family. It's Monday, Thursday, uh, a worship service where we remember and we reflect upon the new commandment, the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room, a commandment, a mandate to love. The word which one Greek dictionary simply defined as having a warm regard for an interest in another. Yet the Bible would seem to give a little more oomph uh, to this word, a little more weight, a little more significance for Christ's warm regard and his interest in us drove him to the cross. So now we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. A command that has missional, kingdom consequences. For through such love, all people will know that we are His disciples. Our love for one another, our life together, our union and communion with Christ will have apologetical ramifications to our witness before the watching world. What Peachtree City in Fayette County, in Tyrone, and Coweta County should notice about Cares Lane is not our amazing programs. It's not how tremendously gifted we, are, we all are, or even our tremendous facilities. But what they should take notice of is that our friends and our neighbors can't help but see how much we love one another. Which begs the question, do we? Do I love you as we have been called? Because if our love for one another is our greatest apologetic, what are the implications of our quiet disdain, our busy indifference, and our casual and generic commitment to life together. Brothers and sisters, the question is not whether or not we should love one another. We know the answer to that question. The real question is how. How are we to love one another? Because life can get messy. And so too can life within the church. So how do we love one another in this amazing way? So my basic premise is this. To hear and to heed this command to love, we must first behold the love of the Savior who commands us to love. Because only by beholding, by being captivated, enraptured, and animated by His love, can we truly begin to understand the age-old question, what is love? Because our culture is both obsessed with and rather confused by love. John Lennon and Paul McCartney want us to think that love is all you need. The drifters, they thought love is a magic moment. They think that it's sweeter than wine, softer than a summer night. Yet for Pat Benatar and Jordan Sparks, love is a battlefield. 
So amidst all of this confusion, let us look instead to the Word of God and to see what love actually is. So if you turn in your Bible with me to John 13, we'll be in verses 31 and 35. It's also in our bulletin this evening. And let us together be awed by the love of our Savior by seeing two things from our passage this evening. A shining light amidst dark shadows and a new commandment. So hear now the word of the Lord from John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Are the word of the Lord. Our first point is a shining light amidst dark shadows. There's a lot going on in John 13. Jesus and his disciples have just arrived in the upper room, yet even here at the start, there's a palpable weightiness. There's a heaviness, a, a tension, as well as an earnestness that's thick within the air. For Jesus knows that his time with his disciples is short. And he desires to love them to the end, to prepare them for what is to come, to ready them for life and for ministry without his physical presence with them. And shockingly, this final soiree began with the disciples watching as Jesus, their honored and cherished rabbi, their Lord, humbly dropping to his hands and his knees to wash their dirty feet. And after a brief discussion in verse 21, the text tells us that Jesus became troubled in his spirit. And he wasn't troubled because of what he found on their feet, but because in their midst would be the one who would betray him. And John is careful to alert us to the fact that the disciples had no clue who he was talking about. But situates our passage in a rather fascinating place. Because in this passage, in the passage that comes just before this one, and the passage that comes just after it, Jesus makes two rather haunting predictions. That one of his disciples would betray him, and that Peter would deny him. This command to love is then given and demonstrated for us in the shadow of both a great betrayal and a great denial. Because Jesus knew that to love can prove costly, that it can get messy, and that it can go even go really sideways at times. He knew that sheep bite, and that they have sharper teeth than one would expect. Yet despite the difficulties, despite the cost, Despite the vulnerabilities of love, 
we're still called to love one another, even and especially in the Mass. And we see that at work in the life of our Savior, who despite the eventual betrayal, he sought to love Judas. He had made Judas one of the twelve. Judas had, was apparently well regarded and well respected and had risen to a role of prominence within their group. Since out of all of them, he was the one who had been entrusted to handle the finances. Jesus and Judas had broken bread together. They had gone on journeys and adventures together. They had done ministry and life together. And he had literally just washed the dirt from between his toes. And now with those very same feet, Judas now strides off into the darkness towards Jesus' betrayal. For three years, Jesus had poured himself into Judas. Yet for all of the riches of God's glory that Jesus had placed before him, Judas now settles for a mere 30 pieces of silver. <coughs> then we see Peter, not only is he one of the twelve, Peter is one of the twelve, he's one of the three. Together with James and John, he's in Jesus' inner circle. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he got to catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ. On the Sea of Galilee, he not only was a spectator to Jesus walking on water, but he got to join him for a couple seconds. Think of all the time that Jesus had invested into both Peter and Judas. Think of the time that he had invested into Peter, answering his many questions, the patience, the love, and the care with which he sought to disciple him. But when a lowly slave girl started asking him questions about his Galilean accent, his funny accent, Peter quickly denies that he even recognizes, much less knows Jesus. Friend, to see loved ones, to see your friends, particularly loved ones whom you've loved so well, betray and abandon you is no small thing. I say again, love can prove quite costly, and our lives can bear the marks of that Betrayals, breaches of trust can wound and maim us in profound ways. Rejections, whether they be public or private, can shake us to the very foundations of who we are. And mixed into the mess of all of this is the reality that none of us are quite as easy to love as we often think. It's so easy to view ourselves as a giant teddy bear. Easy to love and to hug. When the reality is we're far more often like porcupines, standing in a rainstorm in desperate need of a hug. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, loving one another is messy. And at times it hurts because we're prickly. Yet John 13:1 tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. And the joy of the gospel is that there is no end to God's love for his people. That his steadfast love for porcupines like us endures forever. 
Beloved, loving one another can be a bit more prickly than we really appreciate. It's not always easy, nor is it always comfortable or even convenient. In fact, it's often not any of those things. And when it's not easy, and when it's not comfortable, and when it's not convenient, there's a temptation within all of us to pull back, to retreat to where it feels safe and easy, to go where no one can hurt us. Yet gloriously, we have a Savior who doesn't do that. He doesn't pull away when life goes sideways, when his sheep bites, or when the quills start drawing blood. Rather than drawing back, he presses in. He draws near. He comes close to messy, nipping sheep and prickly porcupines like you and me. So our hope in overcoming those great barriers and obstacles to loving one another is Christ's love for us. And the truth of the matter is we can't draw near to one another if Jesus hasn't first drawn near to us. It is only by experiencing God's true love can we truly love in response. The strength to love as Christ has commanded us to love then comes not from our own determination to love, but from Him. For our love is but an echo, a reverberation of His, who when we were dead in our sins died for us. We endeavor to endure in love for one another because Jesus, our Savior, endeavored and endured in His love for us. Because amidst life's dark shadows, Jesus is our shining light. And therefore, may He be our light when all other lights go out. And verses 31 and 32 puts that light before us. As we behold the wonders of the glory of Christ and His great and glorious work of redemption. Verse 31 says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. In other words, and so it begins. But what's begun? What is this whole discussion about? Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. That's a whole lot of glory packed into two verses. So what do we do with all that glory? <coughs> Friends, the glory that Christ has in view here is the glory of the cross and what Jesus would accomplish for us through that cross. For way back in Genesis chapter 3, our God made a promise. A promise that one day one would come who would restore, who would make right, who would heal and all the things, all the relationships that sin and the fall had broken. And Jesus is that one who through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension is the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise of redemption. And it was love. The love of his Father and his love for us that drove Jesus, our Savior, from his heavenly home into this fallen world. And it was love that drove him to that cross. 
cross where the wrath of God for sin was poured out on him who knew no sin, but who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in making his home with us, Jesus welcomes and invites us to make our home with him. Who, as Hebrews 12, too, reminds us, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And friends, this is a love to revel in. This is a love to celebrate. This is a love to sing about. Because this is a love that changes the trajectory, not just of our lives, but of our eternity. So this is not a distant, theoretical love, but an intimate and animating one. A love that becomes the driving and directing force of our love for one another. For if Christ's love is not the bedrock of our love, then our love will assuredly come up woefully short. So anchored and animated in His love, let us now explore His command for us to love one another, which is our second point, a new commandment given in verses 34, 35, through how to look down. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Verse 33, Jesus acknowledges that he's going away. He says, little children, a little while I am with you. He's been with these men for the better part of three years. They've done a good bit of life together, but now he's leaving, and he wants them to be prepared for what's coming. Jesus is staring down the barrel of a cross, but more than that, the wrath and the judgment of God for sin. Yet he's also aware of what's coming down the pike for his disciples. He knows that there will be struggles. He knows that there will be persecutions and trials and difficulties, betrayals and sorrows. And he is in many ways seeking to prepare, to steal them for life and for ministry without his physical presence. And later on in John chapter 14 and John 16, he promises that he will send them the helper, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, he will remind them of their union and communion with Him. Yet here in John 13, He invites them to look around the room, to look one another in the eye as He commands them to love one another as He loved them. Brothers and sisters, one of the good and great gifts that God has given us as His people to faithfully endure as elect exiles, as sojourners in this world, is the gift of one another in Christ. So as we consider this command, let us look at the target of this command, the quality of this command, and the fruit of this command. The target of this command is the community of believers, that the primary, not exclusive, but the primary place where this love is to be both lived and worked out is within the household of faith. 
We see this with Paul in the book of Acts. And whether he's in a city for a day or for a year, Paul is constantly seeking out his brothers and his sisters in Christ to be a source of mutual encouragement and love. So yes, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To value and to care for all those that the Lord has placed in our proximity. But here in this command, a priority is given to love the people of God. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, if our brothers and sisters in Christ are the target of this love, what's the quality of this love supposed to be like? Well, we are to love one another as Christ loved us, which forces us to ask, what were the characteristics of Christ's love for us? Well, Christ loved us incarnationally. He took on flesh and He dwelt among us. He entered into the mess, the muck, and the mire of this life. And He rescued us from our sin. And He's called us to a similar way of life. So are we entering into the mess of each other's lives? In many ways, that just means being aware of each other of being present with one another and being available to one another. Christ's love is incarnational and so should ours. Well, Christ's love was also sacrificial. He suffered and He died for us. So do sacrifices of time, energy, and thoughtfulness characterize our love for one another? Christ's love was also characterized as patient, kind, long-suffering, and enduring. Does our love, does our love for one another seek to bear with one another in love? None of us are a finished product. We all require a good bit of patient endurance. So is ours a community marked by a patient long-suffering and enduring kind of love. Christ's love was also confrontational. Jesus gave no quarter to sin. In fact, in, in the face of Peter's fake and proud bravado, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't overlook sin in the disciples' lives. He pointed it out. He confronted them about it. Are we seeking to purge the sin from our midst? Or do we merely desire to overlook it? Because the issue of pride so easily blinds us to the presence of sin in our lives. So are we willing to lovingly stand in each other's blind spots? To lovingly confront and challenge one another about our sin? And then are we willing to repent? and to confess, and to seek accountability in our struggles with sin, knowing that we have brothers and sisters who will come alongside us and help us to bear one another's burdens. But we've seen the target, and we've seen the quality of this love. What then is the fruit of this love? Well, verse 35 begins by saying, For by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And it's interesting to me that what follows is not that you have really, really good theology. 
Though that is certainly a matter of critical importance. It's not that we have some really, really good programs. It's not that we have a really, really dynamic leader or an intellectual preacher who oozes giftings. It's not that we have lots of money. And it's not that we're really, really successful. No. The world will know that we are Christ's disciples if we have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, do our friends, do our neighbors behold the love for one behold our love for one another? Do they see our cars in each other's driveways throughout the week? When visitors walk through our doors, what does the relational thermostat of our church reveal? Does it reveal that we spend a couple hours together on Sunday, but otherwise don't really care to know or to do life? Does it reveal that there are people in the church that we really love? And there are those that we tend to avoid. Or is there a rich and a richness and a wonder to our fellowship because of that which Christ has done? See, friends, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat his commands. I don't know about you, but as I ponder this command this week, my eyes start to dart around the room. Because I'm asking it of myself, I'll ask it of you. Who in our church family have you loved well recently? And who have you loved not so well? And why? Who Who is it that you need to forgive? And whose forgiveness are you needing to see? Are there barriers and walls between us? If so, what are they? Why are they there? And how can the love of God and the gospel serve as a wrecking ball of grace that they might come tumbling down? Brothers and sisters, would we consider where are we being faithful as a church in our love for one another? And where are we falling short? In light of those important, in light of the importance of this command, It is good for us to feel the weight, to feel the significance of those questions. But my prayer, my hope, is that our response would be to look first and foremost to Jesus. To see and to behold our Christ and His love and His grace gloriously and wondrously poured out upon us in the gospel. Because no matter where we find ourselves this evening, in our love and our affection towards one another. The path towards the path forward, the path towards obedience and faithfulness to God's command to love is not one to be achieved or solved by turning within. The solution is not found in stirring up, up some inner gumption or courage by reaching down and gaining a tighter grasp on the bootstraps of our own morality or spirit of determination. And the path forward is the path of gospel transformation. Transformation that can only happen in Christ. As we together behold the beauty and the glory of His love for us. 
And as we walk with our loving and living Christ through this life with His ordinary means that He Himself has provided us, may we behold the glories of His grace, which brings us to the table that is before us. A table where we can come and together taste and see that not only is our God good, but that He loves us. And that His love will not only endure with us through this life, but for all eternity. That the love of God rescues and redeems us from our sins. But it will also bring us all the way home to glory. Where we will together, with all of the saints, forever bask in the glory and the wonder of God's love for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Would you help us to behold the great wonder of your love? And would we become what we behold? Would you transform us, we pray, that we might love one another as Christ has first loved us? Bless us as a church as we seek to be faithful in this great command. And we pray that you might unite us, grow us, mature us in faith and in love that Kara's Lane might be a beacon of the love of God in Peachtree City for the county. We pray you would do this for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. All this we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.